This is the Queen Behavior Change Podcast. That's queen-like royalty and behavior change, like turning over a new leaf. The focus of our program is science-based mental health care. I'm your host, Dr. Annie Morrow, and it's time to start the show. A couple quick announcements. This show is intended for adults. It is also important to say that this podcast is not medical or psychological advice, nor is it treatment. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sibley. Hi, thank you, Annie. I'm so excited that you're here today. And what I typically do is I have the guests, the experts, introduce themselves, say their name, their degrees, and any relevant licenses or certifications that they have. Well, my name is Maggie Sibley. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the states of Florida and Washington. And my current job title is that I am an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I'm also a licensed psychologist and provider at Seattle Children's Hospital. And I received my um, degree in clinical psychology in 2012 from the University um, of Buffalo, which is the State University of New York, and that degree is a PhD in clinical psychology. That is very cool. And then I realize I, I, I say licenses and certifications, but I don't know if this is actually a certification. Um, I was curious about your expertise in motiv- motivational interviewing and if that, what is that called? Well, um, So motivational interviewing is a therapy or a style of communication that's designed to help people change in a variety of contexts, whether it's substance use treatment or it's education or it's justice system involvement. And so I'm a person who has gone through uh, a training by an organization called the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. So I'm a member of that network, which means that um, one of the things I also do as a part of my job is I help people learn those skills so that they can bring them into different settings. Uh, I've trained people who are psychologists like me, but I've also trained people who are in fields like uh, child welfare or substance use as a master's level counselor. Um, or a range of other different providers. So that's another thing I do that gets me out of just my regular job a little bit. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I feel like we have like the all of the degrees, the licenses, the certifications or memberships or um, all the different things that you have. Um, and I know I always tell the, the experts on the show that my aunts listen to this podcast. So I would like to tell my aunts that are listening right now that Dr. Sibley has supervised and trained me um, in motivational interviewing. I'm one of the people that has learned from her. And before we get into the first segment of the show, I also like to leave a point in the introductions for guests to share anything that they would like with the listeners about their identity. Um, so I'm a psychologist, uh, and let's see, um, what do people usually share during this segment? I just leave it open. You know, the listeners can't see us. So I've had one guest say, um, I'm a Cuban American woman, or I've had another guest that was saying, you know, I'm from Brazil and, you know, my family and and my background is 
from a German descent. I've had people say those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I had another guest say that they identify as an anxious person. I and <laughs> so I don't know anything that you just want to share about yourself rather than me being like a newscaster that reads a long description <laughs> of you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in Miami, Florida. And so I have an interesting, I think, experience of growing up in a really multicultural environment. Um, I ended up going to school on the East Coast in a number of places along the way. Uh, but and then I returned to Miami for, um, I think, about 10 years for a job after I finished grad school. So uh, I definitely identify as a person from Miami and that's an interesting, um, you know, I think identity for people to have. Um, But now I live outside of Miami most of the time and that is also uh, kind of fun for me to, you know, go somewhere new and do something different um, as well. Cool. I don't know if you can see on the maps that are behind my head right now, but on the the far side over here, it says Buffalo, and then there's Miami in there. I have, I, so I have some of the maps. The listeners can't see what I'm pointing to, but I have some maps on my wall that are places that I have lived and also that Dr. Sibley has lived. That's true. We've lived in two of the same places, I guess, right? <laughs> yes, I identify as a Buffalo native um, and a current Miami resident. Yeah. So at one point, you, you were a Buffalo resident, but you were a Miami native. So. Yeah, I had an interesting grad school experience because I, I got my degree from University of Buffalo, but I only lived there for two years. So I spent two years getting my master's in Virginia at JMU and then transferred in as a student with a master's, which basically sped me up a little bit on the PhD, was in Buffalo for two years. And then um, I did my last two years of grad school in Miami because my um, advisor from grad school moved there. So that is why I have a degree from a place that I only lived two years in, even though usually you spend like six years in the place you get your PhD. So that was an interesting experience, I guess. I I think I knew that, but, and JMU is James Madison University. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Okay. Well, now that we've done, spent a lot of time on introductions, I want to make sure to jump into the next segment and I tell the guests, feel free to laugh, but I do this because I think, I don't know. I just, the way I designed it in my mind, where I say the segments of the show in a stupid voice. So the first segment of the show is where guests will explain a clinical pearl of wisdom, something that they've learned from observation and or experience. And I introduce it in this silly voice and I say, this segment is called Practical Pearls. So my topic of the day is how do we make good diagnoses for people with ADHD when they're adults? And I think there's a lot of confusing information out there about what does it look like to have a diagnosis of ADHD in adults? Um, How many people have ADHD when they're adults? If you had ADHD as a kid, do you still have it as an adult? So I'm going to be focusing on that topic today. And, um, one of the practical pieces I wanted to share is to talk a little bit about what it looks like if you have ADHD and who are the people that can be confusing and look like they have ADHD, but they don't really have ADHD. I think this is a really helpful and handy topic. Um, So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about, about this area. Okay. Well, I'm going to start out by sharing a few different um, people who could walk in the door 
who might not have ADHD. And these are people we have to be on the lookout for. And then I'm gonna tell a little bit about the people who we might miss. So first of all, the symptoms of ADHD in adults are probably not the same as they are in children, but unfortunately, um, the handbook that psychologists and other medical professionals use to diagnose mental disorder, which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, we'll call it the DSM for short, it doesn't do a super good job describing what ADHD should look like in an adult. And so a lot of people who are um, in private practice or in hospital settings where they might consider this diagnosis don't exactly have a real easy guide that they could go look up you know, information about this topic. So um, usually we're looking for a person who's having really significant difficulties in their daily life because they're having trouble with things like focusing or keeping themselves organized or even sometimes making impulsive decisions that can get them into trouble. And those are some of the core symptoms of ADHD that we see in adults. Um, but there are other things that can look like that. So for example, um, sometimes we have people who are in a situation in their life where they're really stressed out and there's a lot going on and they're having trouble focusing. But it's really just because of that stressful situation that they're having trouble focusing. So we would say that that's not someone with ADHD because one of the requirements is that you have had ADHD for a consistent period of your life, regardless of what's happening in that life, whether it's a good year or a bad year, you kind of consistently have this chronic um, experience of always having had those symptoms, even though they might be better in some years than they are in others. That's one thing. Um, there are also other disorders that have cognitive symptoms or have symptoms that look like focus problems. So for example, when people have anxiety disorders, oftentimes they can't focus on certain things because they're so worried about stuff. Or when people get depressed, sometimes they have trouble, you know, engaging in daily life activities like work or school and focusing on that because they just feel so bad. So we also are on the lookout for people who have other disorders with focus problems to make sure that we don't accidentally classify those folks as people who have ADHD. And I think for the listeners, um, you know, when Dr. Sibley is going through and giving all of these different examples, what I think is interesting is sometimes the way referrals look, maybe there'll be a primary care provider or there'll be someone else that works with that individual that will refer everyone that she has just mentioned so far to a mental health provider, for example, such as us, a clinical psychology. Um, and then the line at the top, the referral will just say ADHD question mark or ADHD testing, or um, you know some other attention attention problems, and so I think it is really important for listeners hearing this to understand. Yes, it may be that someone is initially asking about attention, but for us, it's really important to be thorough because, for example, as as Dr. Sibley was talking about how people with depression sometimes have difficulty uh, focusing, I remember very clearly. Um, it must have been about 10 years ago, there was a young man that was referred um, to the provider that I was shadowing at the time, who is a psychiatrist for quote unquote ADHD question mark or whatever the referral was. And he was thinking about uh, not wanting to live anymore constantly. I mean, he almost for a minute long never had a break from that thought. And he was thinking about plans and actions um, and his 
at least once every 15 minutes. And that was a huge part of his day. So of course, of course, he was having a lot of difficulty focusing on his junior year in college. Um, and so I, I think it's just really important for the people that are listening to understand um, that all of these different cases, it may seem in hindsight as she's describing them like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, depression and anxiety look a little bit alike. But really that, you know, we might get 10 or 20 different referrals that all say ADHD question mark, and they all have different um, concerns that are really going on. So I, I, I think it's very interesting the points that you're, you're making right now. Yeah, I'm going to give you a couple other ones that I think are really big. Uh, cognitive effects of substance use. So there are people who smoke a lot of marijuana and they look like they have ADHD because of the marijuana amount that they're smoking. It's very well known that um, short term, um, marijuana causes troubles with memory. It can cause trouble with people being able to stay motivated and stay focused. And so if people are using a lot of marijuana or other substances that might have those cognitive effects, that can look like ADHD. Now it's tricky because people are at more risk for using those types of drugs to begin with if they have ADHD. So just because someone's smoking a lot of marijuana doesn't mean it's not ADHD, but we have to work hard, and I can talk more about that in a second, about like how do you disentangle then what's what in a, in a person like this who might be more complicated. Absolutely. Um, could, be, could be either or, could be both. Yeah. The other thing is that society has certain rewards for having a diagnosis of ADHD. And this is especially becomes, I think, um, apparent when people get to adulthood. So for example, some people want stimulant medications like Ritalin or Adderall um, so that they can take those medications to enhance their performance. And usually it's people looking to enhance their academic performance or their performance at work, because even if you don't have ADHD, taking those medications can sometimes improve cognitive efficiency in certain ways. And so some people like the idea of taking them. And so uh, there are people out there who will exaggerate their attention problems or make them up um, in order to hopefully get somebody to give them that diagnosis so they can get the prescription. And so that's another issue, especially for physicians um, to, to be on the lookout for that, as well as the fact that you can also get school accommodations like untimed testing on the SATs or other high stakes um, tests by having an ADHD diagnosis. Um, and so there are also folks who, um, who would like to have that accommodation for themselves. And so they pursue the diagnosis and maybe are making up their symptoms or exaggerating them. It's a good point. Yep. So um, the other, the last one I'll, I'll mention is people who have some symptoms of ADHD, but they don't have any problems in their life due to those symptoms. So you can probably think of people you know who are a little bit absent-minded or maybe um, you know a little bit impulsive and maybe sometimes are risk takers or um, you know sometimes act without thinking a little bit socially and say silly things that you know get them into trouble. But just because you have a little bit of you know those tendencies doesn't mean that you have ADHD. And so we really um, are focused on finding people who actually have what we call impairment or real problems in their life because of the symptoms. Things like, you know, failing out of school or not being able to do a job or people who have lost lots of friends and relationships because they're getting into trouble with, you know, the kinds of things they do or say. Um, people who've had uh, gotten into trouble with the law uh, or substances because they're being impulsive. So really we're looking for people with actual 
you know, real stressful, distressing or impairing problems, um, you know, in order to give that diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And for whatever reason, I think people who find out you're a psychologist, whether they're sitting next to you on an airplane or it's just like someone in your family, they 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 love to ask about like, oh, well, like I check these boxes. So does that mean that I have it? And I, I kind of feel like the, the point that you're making right now, um, you know, it's something where I just try to avoid those conversations. I think when people, uh, you know, are just bringing up you know, things almost to be silly, like, oh, I'm so ADHD, I'm so this. And I think really glossing over the fact that, you know, ADHD, um, it, like you were mentioning about functional impairment, included in the requirements in order to receive the diagnosis is that it's really difficult. It's not really that funny. It's not really, there, it's not really a silly topic of that someone is having a really hard time in their life. Um, so I, I'm glad that, that you brought that point up as well. And yeah, I've also I've also seen. I think you mentioned stress in the beginning, uh, but I was going to add to your list of points that come up a lot in supervision um, uh, when I'm talking with with uh, trainees or students is also trauma. I think that when you're really going through a lot um, and processing something really unfair or scary or difficult that happened, it can affect your ability to focus on the present moment and to accomplish certain tasks. Um, so I, I add that to your list. Um, you're, you're right on with that. That's also on my list that I just, I could, I could keep listing things for hours. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, there actually is a lot of research to substantiate that. I know we're not in the research section yet, but um, you know, it's long been known from people who study trauma that executive functions is one of the symptom of systems that's immediately impacted by um, unresolved trauma or people who you know have um, multiple traumas. So in that situation, all of a sudden, people who are experiencing those executive function difficulties, especially if they experience trauma in childhood or as teenagers when the brain is still developing, they look on paper like they have ADHD. You know, the question that the field of psychologists and mental health professionals have to ask themselves and the people who write the DSM is what is okay for us to count as a reason to have these symptoms? Because if you think about it, you could have what looks like ADHD symptoms for a number of other reasons too. Illnesses, um, you can have those symptoms because you had a traumatic brain injury. You can have those symptoms because you went through chemotherapy. And so there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily what we think of of ADHD, but they cause people to check all the boxes for ADHD. And I think the field is in a debate right now about whether we should call people with um, secondary ADHD or ADHD due to atypical reasons, whether we should call that ADHD or we should call that something else. Yeah, well, I certainly don't have the answer to that question, um, but I'm, I'm really excited. You, you mentioned um, just a minute ago about talking more about research, and so I want to make sure that there's time for you to go over the paper that we were talking about um, in email. So I will introduce the next section of the show where experts talk about a recent scientific finding, and I call this one science time. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a finding of a paper that I was involved in. So this was published, I think, two years ago. And I'm going to link the paper that you're talking about and that you were not just involved in, but you were the first author of this paper. Is that right? That is right. Okay, I'm going to link this paper in the show notes. 
So um, there is a study of ADHD that happened in the 90s that was sort of the big, I guess, flagship ADHD research study for how to treat children. So what happened was the National Institute of Mental Health um, basically solicited applications from all the people who were ADHD researchers back in the 90s saying, we're going to put on a multi-site study and we're going to try to find out the end all be all to this question of what's the best way to treat ADHD. Should we use medication? Should we use behavioral therapy? Should we use them both? And so um, from across North America, there were applications put in to be a part of this big study that, that um, National Institute of Mental Health, which we call the NIMH, is funding. And what we uh, saw was that six sites got um, selected and they ranged from um, actually all the way up in Canada and Montreal. There was a site, there was a site in California, one in North Carolina, um, there was a site in Pennsylvania, there were sites across the US. Um, and so what happened was out of this research, there were hundreds of kids with ADHD who were then followed for um, until they were 25 years old. And you, most of them were about eight when it started. So we've got this interesting group of kids who we know a lot about, and we know a lot about their development um, from when they're eight to when they were 25. And so um, I was part of a research team that was interested in finding out more about this question about um, adults who come in and wanna get diagnosed with ADHD for the first time. What we wanted to know is, is it possible that someone could spontaneously get ADHD as an adult, but not have it as a child? Because there are people who come in and say, you know, this just started for me. And, and unless you have a science uh, that backs up that claim, right now we've always thought of ADHD as something that starts in childhood and, you know, is ongoing. So in before, order you, before you keep going, I was just curious. So as you're saying that a really important question is, um, is it possible that ADHD can be just something that pops up later on. Someone doesn't have it as a child and then it just pops up later on. And so I think that for the listeners to know, I think this is a really important question because for example, it, you know, I know as Dr. Sibley and I have spent a lot of time, when you're working with children with ADHD when they're younger, uh, they're overwhelmingly, there's a big majority that are male. And one of the things that I find to be that's really interesting is when you receive adult ADHD referrals, there are a lot more women that are in that mix of referrals. So there's definitely a, a, a lack of balance. And I think that's part of where this question comes from is that the group of children that is consistent, you know, that we studied with ADHD when they were younger does not match who tends to walk through the door with the, the ADHD question mark, the ADHD testing as their referral line. And is, is that right? Is that part of what this paper is trying to understand? Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring that up. I won't go too deeply into that gender question, but I think one of the things um, that that has come up come up over the last few years is that there were, uh, there were scientists claiming that um, almost all people who have ADHD in childhood have it resolved by the time that they're adults and that it's a whole new group of people who have it as adults and almost none of them had it as children. And that didn't match what people clinically were seeing and they were confused about it. And so what actually prompted this paper was that um, we thought that the, there were a few studies done 
one in New Zealand, one in Brazil, one in the UK, and they all were sort of making this claim. And um, one of the things that we, as a group of authors um, who sat down and wanted to write this paper, we thought, you know, there's a few things that they didn't look thoroughly at when they made that conclusion. And it was some of the things I was just mentioning at the beginning of this segment. You really have to ask a lot of questions to somebody if you're going to make a diagnosis of ADHD for the first time as an adult. And they didn't ask a lot of questions. They asked just a few questions. And so um, we thought we have this perfect opportunity to, with lots of information on lots of people for lots of years to ask those questions and try to find out you know, if there are people like this, who are they, where did they come from, and why didn't anyone see this when they were younger, and what happened? So that's sort of the background on that question. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. So we, um, what happened in this study was, we were, while we were following all these children with ADHD for so many years, um, a couple years into the study, they decided that you know what, it would be really important to also start following kids without ADHD side by side from the same exact classrooms. Because then when over time, as the kids with ADHD are getting older, not only can we tell how they change, but we can tell how they compare to kids who would have had very similar circumstances as they did, but did not have ADHD. So the kids without ADHD who then joined this study a couple years later came from the exact same classrooms as the kids with ADHD from the same cities. Um, and so now we've got these peers who kind of walk side by side and every year they come in, they fill out a very long set of questionnaires about ADHD. And so even though they don't have it, because they're in a study about ADHD, they've been filling out questionnaires about ADHD for essentially over a decade. So this was all of a sudden maybe the only sample of kids that we knew of in the research community that don't have ADHD as children, but had been asked more questions than you could ever want to be asked about ADHD every two years of their life until they were 25. So suddenly we, we realized we had the perfect uh, group of people to start looking at to answer this question. So I'm sure the, the listeners are understanding that there's now suspense as to, okay, you have this group of children, they have filled out questionnaires about ADHD. They didn't have ADHD at the start. And then of this group, how many of them, quote unquote, had ADHD suddenly pop up when they were adults? Right. So this sample of kids was about 240 kids with no ADHD as children. And if we followed what the uh, previous studies um, had found, we should expect that out of these 240 that we should have like 24 or like 10% of this sample should be people who suddenly have ADHD as adults, because that is what those studies were claiming that 10% of people uh, who don't have ADHD as children would then go on to have it as an adult without any history in childhood. So we were looking to see, are there 24 people like this or is there a different number? Is there anyone at all? So we went through this really, really careful process where we started out using the same tools that the other um, studies had used. And what it was, was we just asked them a questionnaire. Uh, we looked at their questionnaires where uh, all 18 symptoms of ADHD were listed and parents and teachers and the kids themselves were just asked, check off the symptoms that you have, right? So if we just looked at, did you have a, uh, 
any of the 18 symptoms of ADHD. And just for the listeners, um, you know, you're supposed to have at least six in order to be able to be counted as having ADHD. Um, if you have, you know, how many of these symptoms did you have? So if we started like that, all of a sudden we did have a pretty large group. In fact, one of our findings was that almost 50% of that sample at some point over those 16 years that we kept checking them every two years would uh, have enough symptoms, which is a lot considering that none of them had ADHD in childhood. So everyone essentially- Or maybe none of them had ADHD ever. Well, half of the people, you know, had a bad day or a bad year or yeah. a bad week where at that time someone thought that they were having those troubles, right? Right. But then if you ask some additional follow-up questions, okay, so are these people actually having any problems in their life due to these symptoms? Suddenly you lose a lot of them. And then when you start asking more questions like, okay, well, are these symptoms there for like a sustained six month period? Are these symptoms there in more than one setting? And what I mean by that is sometimes people take a really hard math class and they have really a hard time focusing and keeping up because it was just a challenge. Are those symptoms outside, happening outside of that math class, right? Or, um, you know, if you think about with the parents, sometimes people have parents that are hard to get along with because the parents are having, you know, stressors or issues in their lives. So are those um, behavioral difficulties outside of that parent relationship? So if you start asking those careful questions, and then you start asking questions like, are there other explanations for these symptoms? And we had so much information on these kids that we could just look up at pretty much everything going on in their life. And we found that a lot of them were people who were heavy drug users, who had a longstanding other diagnosis like depression, and that for those folks, often that was the more clear explanation for some of the symptoms. So in the end, when we really got down to it, we only found two people who had possible um, ADHD that started when they were an adult. And of those two people, they were both complicated people to begin with. One of them um, had been struggling with sleep problems for years. And so we, we didn't have definitive proof, but we wondered whether the sleep was part of the problem with the symptoms they were experiencing. The other was a person who had um, experienced uh, eating disorders and other forms of psychopathology for years themselves. So again, they weren't people who were functioning really well in their life to begin with. They were already people who were having other kinds of problems. So when we were really careful, you know, we didn't, we didn't find that this uh, late or adult onset form of ADHD was present. Um, it doesn't mean it's not, but in this 240 kids, we didn't find really good evidence of it. It's so interesting hearing not just the, the answer as to the question of in this sample, what, you know, was there adult onset ADHD or not, but also I think what's really interesting is sort of this critical thinking and this process of narrowing. So in the order in which the research study asked the questions about ADHD, and I think that could be really helpful for other providers. So they started out by using standardized rating scales, standardized questionnaires, and asking about the ADHD symptoms. Then that alone, you know, said, okay, ADHD is not a concern um, for this X, Y, and Z percentage. And then after the symptoms, then asking about, you know, is it present in multiple settings? Is it present for a certain amount of time? 
functional impairment and then, okay, so on and so forth. And then getting to that question about, you know, is it um, another concern such as difficulty focusing due to depression or, you know, trouble focusing because you're not sleeping at night and so you're just really tired or, you know, maybe with eating disorder type concerns, I can't focus when I'm hungry. So if a person isn't maybe getting enough calories in a day, that could affect their ability to um, buckle down and focus on, on a task. So I think that part of the study um, is really interesting um, and not necessarily that the study occurred in that exact order, but I, I think just the way that you presented, it shows that line of thinking. Yeah, and it did occur in that order, and that would be what I would recommend to providers. Is like I would call that a stepped procedure, right? Start out, cast a really wide net. It's really important to ask as many people in the person's life as possible if they wouldn't mind um, giving you information about the person. So if you're diagnosing somebody in adulthood, or you're wondering if you know that would be an appropriate um, diagnosis for them, you have to think a little bit about, okay, who's in this person's life that we can ask to describe them? One, because people, um, adults with ADHD classically have trouble with self-awareness. So they don't always give you, um, whatever they say about themselves. It's not always what other people would say about them. On the other hand, sometimes that works in the favor of, um, you know, they tend to say, no, no, I don't really have problems with that. And they minimize it. On the other hand, there's a lot of people without ADHD out there who tend to, um, especially those with anxiety or people who have very high standards for themselves, who tend to pick up on any imperfection they have in being able to, you know, um, function at a high level. And they tend to be um, critical of themselves. And then they end up, you know, self-diagnosing when the problems aren't really that serious. And so we have to ask other people about them to be able to try to like anchor them to what to uh, what a typical person looks like. Is this person really experiencing an extreme level of these difficulties? I think that's a great point that you made about asking informants or asking other people in the person's life. In some of the cases where there has been an adult that has ADHD, um, their wife or their, somebody else that was in their life sort of dragged them in. I'm motioning, the listeners can't see, kind of yanked them in by their collar. And the person themselves was denying that there was any concern whatsoever. And then the other person in their life was really concerned about their day-to-day -day functioning and their ability to focus and get through chores at home or, you know, tasks at work. Um, I also, I remember at one point you said that you might want to mention or touch on um, some of the adults who do have ADHD, but that could get missed. Um, and so I was just curious to hear your point on that. Yeah. So one of the tricky things is, is that you're supposed to establish that somebody's symptoms began before they were 12 years old. And so if someone is deciding to be really strict with the DSM criteria, especially as adults get older, it gets really hard to find someone who can give you good information on what they were like before they were 12 years old. Because most of us aren't very good at reporting what we're like before we were 12 years old, no matter who you are. So and the point that I made about trauma, for, especially for people that have a, a lot of difficulties and adversities in their past, it's even harder sometimes for them to get that information, which I think makes it really hard to tell the difference between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're in a situation where there was a lot of family chaos, um, you also may have family members who 
thought that you were just fine because you were the best one in the household and you know everyone else is having you know worse problems than you are so there's a lot of reasons why it can be tricky to establish that um that long-term history of adhd back to childhood and so one of the things you know in um consulting with people who even people who specialize in like geriatric psychiatry um you know even just being able to establish a chronicity or what i mean by that is like a long-term pattern of symptoms um, that goes for many years and isn't just something that you've been experiencing recently i think is a big part of that picture and is important um, and you mentioned women with ADHD too. So we are at a risk for missing ADHD in women. Um, part of that is because the symptoms were uh, defined based on observations of ADHD in uh, boys and men. On the other hand, uh, we have to be careful with women because women have higher standards for themselves and women have, may have um, anxiety at higher rates as well that may actually lead them to also be the kinds of people that uh, misinterpret sort of our normative variations in intention. Um, and so there's a lot of people who are mothers of a boy with ADHD who start wondering, I wonder if I have this too. They say it's genetic. I do have a little bit of trouble concentrating at work. So that's again, uh, we, we, we're at risk for missing um, women with ADHD, and we have to be very good about um, you know, being flexible in how those symptoms could look in women versus men. But we also have to be scrutinizing too, because there are sort of gonna be some women out there who um, may be self-diagnosing and being a little bit too strict on themselves because they have high standards for themselves. And I think that Eric Youngstrom and colleagues, they came out with a paper on evidence-based assessment and they go through a little bit the stepwise process that you were talking about earlier of how to incorporate information from different methods and from different sources. And I can link that in the show notes as well. I talked about that paper, I think in the second episode on the show, but I, I think that, yeah, it's people might be listening to this thinking like, oh man, like how can you decide, you know, is it that we're at risk for missing the diagnosing women or we're at risk for overdiagnosing women and what it's so confusing. And so I think that's where, you know, there are papers out there about how to synthesize information from different sources. And then also I think for any listeners that are listening, you know, hearing us, it's also, I think why sometimes people are like, well, why does this appointment have to be so long? Why do I have to fill out all these papers? Why are you asking me these questions about if I have thoughts of not wanting to live anymore? Um, so I think that it helps explain, you know, why it is appropriate sometimes for an ADHD evaluation to be thorough. Well, and the other thing that you kind of touch on there is like, there's a lot of people who come in for something else and they actually do have ADHD and maybe it hasn't been diagnosed. And if we don't um, also catch the ADHD diagnosis, we may be painting an incomplete clinical picture in a way that actually can be harmful to the patient. So if one of the reasons that somebody's depressed is because they've been experiencing so much failure over the years due to their ADHD symptoms, if you don't treat those ADHD symptoms, even if you, their depression remits, you know, you're still faced with the same uh, triggers and stressors that led to the depression depression to begin with. So that's just an example of that. Yeah, and Dr. Kaye, Dr. Arthur Kaye that was on the show, I think it was the third episode, he made that same point. Um, so I'm glad that that you, you know, doubled down on that point of that if you miss ADHD, it makes your life really hard. So of course, it would put you at risk to have other concerns secondary to the ADHD. So it's important if it is occurring to, you know, 
to look for that, assess for that, and then to link people up to solutions that are based in science. Not that we talked as much about the evidence-based uh, treatments and interventions, but there really is a lot out there to help people. And so it's just about being thorough and then linking people up. Um, you know, I, I think whenever there's people listening, I'm like, there's hope, there's hope. I know we're getting to the end of the episode, but there's, there's a reason that we do this. You get to see people's lives improve. Um, so um, as we're wrapping up, um, hearing about this very interesting study that you led, I, I really like to first thank all of the experts for their time. And then also just to hear is that, you know, what else would you like to add before we sign off today? Well, I think if you um, are treating a person with ADHD or you know a person with ADHD, um, a lot of times people who are in primary care may be um, you know, interacting with someone with ADHD who's an adult, but not necessarily their primary provider of the ADHD treatment. It's important to know what the um, effective treatments are for adults with ADHD. And so if you do diagnose someone, like what should you do next with them? And so I think uh, one of the things that's critical to know is that there are medications that are really effective out there. Um, there's several different types of stimulant medications and non-stimulant medications. And that's great that the breadth of those medications is growing because now people can find um, certain formulations that fit the timing of how many hours they need to be using the medication based on their job schedule or, um, you know, if they are only uh, need to be on for a short period of the day, maybe they're going to take a short acting one that only lasts a few hours. There's also cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a treatment that you would do with a psychologist or a, a mental health therapist. And these uh, treatments teach people strategies to be able to overcome their ADHD symptoms. So there's sort of two effective treatments for ADHD in adulthood, and they both uh, you know, help in a lot of ways. Sometimes people do both of them at the same time and get really great um, you know, experience from that too. So just know that if, if you are working with someone, um, there are answers to help them with these symptoms. And it's important that we help people get to effective um, places to get care. Yeah, I'm really glad that you reviewed that. Um, and I will link, at least for one example, for the cognitive behavior therapy, I can link to a workbook in the show notes that is, from, I don't know, you've probably seen the Treatments That Work series. They have yep. a great workbook there. So I'll link that um, just so that we can be specific for people who are tuning in. And I'll go ahead and I will sign off. We hope you liked the show. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Queen Behavior Change and on TikTok and at Twitter at Queen BEE Change. Queen BEE Change. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.